This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and managing editor of the Business of Government magazine. For over 16 years, the IBM Center for the Business of Government has sought to connect research to practice, engaging authors and academics who, in their research and studies, contribute in some form or fashion to changing the way government does business. There is a long tradition of public management scholarship that has provided empirical support for the hypothesis that management matters for government performance. One specific management activity that has been growing in prominence in federal agencies over the last several years is risk management. More commonly used in private sector firms, risk management has recently been recognized as a valuable tool by public organizations. How can risk management strategies reduce operational risk? What is an improper payment? How has the U.S. Department of Labor employed risk management strategies to reduce improper payments in its unemployment insurance program? The IBM Center for the Business of Government has a long interest in risk management, and today we'll explore a specific focus on employing risk management strategies to reducing improper payments in the U.S. Department of Labor's unemployment insurance program. My guest today is Professor Justin Bullock, co-author of the IBM Center report, Risk Management and Reducing Improper Payments, a case study of the U.S. Department of Labor. Professor Bullock, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Michael. Justin, your report provides a case study of how the U.S. Department of Labor developed and implemented strategies to reduce improper payments in the unemployment insurance program. And one prominent agency within labor is the Employment and Training Administration, ETA, which administers the unemployment insurance program. For purposes of setting context, what is the mission of labor and what is the mission and purpose of the ETA? Certainly. Um, so the Department of Labor uh, has a wide array of programs. Um, their specific mission is to foster, promote, and develop the welfare of the wage earners, job seekers, and retirees of the United States, improve working conditions, and advance opportunities for profitable employment, and assure work re- work-related benefits and rights. And so it's kind of the catch-all place for federal, although there are other agencies that handle these issues as well, but it's kind of the main agency for, or the main department for dealing with issues of workers, workers' rights, uh, and broadly people who are participating in the labor pool. Um, The Employment and Training Administration is a subsection of the Department of Labor, um, and its uh, its specific mission is to contribute to the more efficient functioning of the U.S. labor market by providing high-quality job training, employment, labor market information, and income maintenance services primarily through state and local workforce development systems. And so uh, the ETA in particular is trying to find ways to keep the American labor force as efficient as possible. And one of the ways in which 
they do that is by trying to run the unemployment insurance program as effectively as possible. And so they try to be very good stewards of the taxpayers' do- uh, dollars while trying to provide some basic safety net for workers when they lose their job through no fault of their own. As a follow-up, would you tell us more about the unemployment insurance program, its structure, financing, and the role the federal government plays in executing? Sure. Um, It's a fairly complex program. Um, As I started getting into the unemployment insurance program and studying it in my PhD program, I've been studying improper payments since I was in my PhD at the University of Georgia. The unemployment insurance program, I started delving into because my advisor at the time was doing some work with the unemployment insurance program. And it actually took me a bit of time to sort through all of it. So it's a jointly administered federal state program. And what that means is that the federal government provides the basic structure for the rules and some of the basic financing mechanisms. But they allow the states to make a lot of decisions about uh, the specifics. So before I get there, though, it provides unemployment benefits to eligible workers. And eligible workers, there's a couple criteria around that. But in general, it's people who were holding a job and then lost their job, and it wasn't a fault of their own. And what that means specifically varies by state definitions, but being laid off or uh, an organization closing or something like that, or downsizing. And then the program makes payments directly to these workers um, on some sort of replacement basis. So uh, it'll be some percentage of their income for some number of weeks. And the idea here is that it helps the worker meet their basic needs while they're transitioning into uh, another job. Uh, Again, it's a federal-state partnership. The federal government, uh, just to kind of give you some highlights, uh, they ensure that the state laws, regulations, rules, and operations conform uh, with the federal laws. They determine administrative fund requirements and provide money to states for proper and efficient administration. So the states get, in part, their administration dollars from the federal funds. They set broad policy for the administration of the program. They monitor the states. They provide technical assistance to the states, which is some of what we're going to see throughout this conversation, and they hold and invest the money in a fund that they collect from the states until it's time to be drawn down by the states for payment or compensation. And the states, on the other hand, play the role of essentially being the administrators. So each of the states have uh, state workforce agencies where they work with the actual claimants to determine whether they're eligible and then uh, coordinate the payments to those individuals. Uh, Justin, your report for the IBM Center focuses on tackling improper payments. What constitutes an improper payment? And perhaps you could tell us more about improper payment legislation and OMB requirements. Sure. Um, So uh, there's a lot going on there with improper payments, so I'll try to not talk around it too much. I've been interested in improper payments, again, since I was working on uh, working on my PhD. The, what constitutes an improper payment is a, is a question that I get quite often, actually, uh, in presenting some academic research at conferences. And it's essentially these programs, in particular the Department of Labor, but some others that we can talk about, have a code or a set of eligibility criteria for who should be receiving money. And then there's some type of criteria on the amount in which they receive. And so an improper payment is a payment that is paid to a citizen, uh, or can be paid to an organization, but in this context, it's a citizen. And it's improper if, one, it is paid to someone who wasn't eligible. So if you weren't, uh, if you had been fired, for example, and it was uh, for cause, 
and you got and you got unemployment insurance payments, for example, that would be improper because you weren't meeting the code set of eligibility. So that's one way that it can be improper. The second is that these federal programs, and sticking with our case here, Department of Labor and Unemployment Insurance Program, have a formula for how much each person should receive. And these formulas are different by state. They have some basic set criteria. But so even if you are eligible and you are paid because you are eligible, an improper payment can arise if you are paid more or less than you're supposed to. We mostly focus on overpayments, but you could also be underpaid, and that would also classify as an improper payment. Justin, as a follow-up, OMB highlights the review process it expects agencies to perform in tackling uh, improper payments. Would you outline the four-step process highlighted in your report? Sure. So the OMB plays the major role of making sure that federal programs are doing their best to lower improper payments. And they've gotten more of this responsibility over time. But in an uh, OMB circular, the, these, this four-review process that you speak of, it can be found in the Appendix C to Circular Number A123 in the OMB for anyone interested. Um, but they lay out a, a process uh, that it, it, it expects agent, the, the OMB expects agencies to perform. And the four-step process looks like this. The first step is that agencies are to review all their programs and activities and identify those that are susceptible to significant improper payments. And then once they've identified these programs, they are required to obtain a statistically valid estimate of the annual amount of improper payments for those programs that were identified in the first step. Then after they have put in process, which for the Department of Labor, they have this information gathering unit called the Benefit Accuracy Measurement Program, which is where a lot of these data are generated from. Then they are required to implement a plan to reduce improper payments. And then the agencies are required to write an annual agency financial report, which is where a lot of these numbers are found, or a performance and accountability report. The OMB also provides a variety of tools and other requirements to the programs as well. OMB may classify a program as high priority if the program meets specific conditions. Justin, what are those conditions? In the same OMB uh, circular that I mentioned, uh, that has an A123 circular and in particular, they laid out an appendix C that lays out a bunch of these things. And so in that same document, it talks about when the OMB may classify a program as a high priority. And the, the conditions are as such. The program is susceptible to significant improper payments as defined by statute and OMB implementation guidance, including if the program has greater than $10 million in, in improper payments and over 1.5% of payments are improper or if the program has more than $100 million total dollars in estimated improper payments, and if it did any of the following three things. First, estimated and reported improper payments above the OMB determined threshold, which is currently at this time $750 million in improper payments, or contributed to government-wide improper payments in the most recent reporting year. If they did not report an improper payment estimate for the most recent reporting year, but it had reported improper payments before and did not receive measuring and reporting relief from the OMB, um, or has not yet reported an overall improper payment estimate amount, but the aggregate of the program's component improper payments is above the threshold. Um, so essentially, they're looking here for either big programs, such as Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, 
and something like unemployment insurance, or they're looking for programs that have had a history of having large amounts of, of improper payments. And so these are things like uh, supplemental security income, uh, retirement survivors and disability insurance, rental housing assistance programs. Um, so even if they're not quite as big, they are programs that have been uh, sort of documented to have a decent percentage of improper payments. Uh, one specific management activity in federal agencies that has been growing in prominence over the last several years is risk management. More commonly used in private sector firms, risk management has recently been recognized as a valuable tool by public organizations. Justin, what is enterprise risk management? And perhaps you can outline the benefits of risk management to operational performance. Sure. Um, I agree that it uh, does have a uh, growing prominence, uh, both in the private sector. One interesting piece is that it is all, risk management strategies are also attracting in the literature some continued importance in the public sector as well. I actually have a, a paper under review right now with uh, Dr. Greer and another co-author looking at more formalizing some of these risk management strategies for the public sector. Um, so these, uh, this has become sort of a, a big issue, not only in the private, but also the public sector. And there are some general benefits of, of risk management, and some of these also have been uh, have shown up in other IBM reports, for example. But some of these benefits include improved decision-making, improved information flow, gaining an understanding of the importance of sustaining high credibility as an agency, um, affording the opportunity for agencies to make more educated decisions. Um, it keeps them off the GAO's uh, high-risk list. It allows them to better budget for uncertainty. They're better positioned to take advantage of opportunities and improved performance. And so this sort of broad risk management strategy allows them to think more carefully through all the types of risks that an organization might incur. And so um, it has a, a wide array of benefits to all types of organizations, both in the public and the private sector. What are the root causes of improper payments in labor's unemployment insurance program? We'll explore this question and so much more on our special edition of the Business of Government Hour, A Conversation with Authors Returns. This is The Center This Week, highlighting the latest trends and best practices for improving government effectiveness. Brought to you by the IBM Center for the Business of Government. I'm Michael Keegan, Managing Editor of the Business of Government magazine. The Center this week is our opportunity to inform and, most importantly, to invite you, our listeners, to use the IBM Center for the Business of Government as your resource, a how-to resource for improving government effectiveness at the state, local, and federal level. Our forum also provides three distinct yet complementary perspectives on the importance of strategic enterprise risk management. This is especially timely given the Obama administration's focus on accountability and transparency that has prompted a renewed focus on risk and controls. Professor Karen Hardy leads off and introduces the concept of enterprise risk management. Well, actually, you know, there are several definitions out there to define enterprise risk management. It's somewhat rather cryptic, to be quite honest with you. But at the end of the day, enterprise risk management is pretty much the process by which the management of risk within an organization are not just confined to a specific area or discipline like information technology or human resources, but these, these risks are raised to the executive level within an organization so that the nature and impact of those risks 
uh, can be considered and assessed at the most strategic level within the organization. So really what I'm saying is that risks within an organization are not confined to stovepipes in terms of consideration of impact on the organization's objective and mission, but it's developed into a portfolio that's raised to the executive level within an organization. Hardy illustrates the benefits and challenges of pursuing an enterprise risk management strategy and outlines recommendations to government leaders. You know, the benefits are, are pretty anecdotal at this point because we're at a place where we can't really quantify or measure those benefits. Uh, again, risk management or enterprise risk management is pretty much in its infancy within the government uh, space. But in terms of benefits, I would say that initially agencies have a chance to gain a cultural understanding of the importance of how to sustain high credibility as an agency when it comes to managing risk. Another benefit would include um, the opportunity for agencies to make more educated decisions about how they operate their agencies. Uh, One of the things I've seen, and it's more of a cultural thing, is that the dynamic in terms of interactions between the agency leaders across the entire agency, actually having those leaders come together and look at risk at a holistic enterprise level is also a a key benefit that uh, agencies can realize. And one other thing is that uh, agencies uh, can align risk with the agency program goals and objectives, which a lot of agencies do not have the opportunity to do. Now, on the flip side of that, some of the challenges uh, for enterprise risk management uh, really include providing the appropriate foundation and assessment and the management platform for actually implementing enterprise risk management. If you don't have the senior buy-in, if you don't have a structural or a platform or even a standard for implementing enterprise risk management, then that really causes a huge challenge within organizations as far as moving forward. More information on this and other center resources is available at businessofgovernment.org. There you will find how the business of government is not business as usual. For the IBM Center for the Business of Government, I'm Michael Keegan, and this has been The Center This Week. The latest edition of the Business of Government magazine delves into a diverse set of topics and public management issues facing us today. Hi, I'm Michael Keegan, the editor of the Business of Government magazine, and with each edition I present the leadership stories of a select group of public servants and complement their frontline experience with practical insights from thought leaders, merging real-world experience with practical scholarship. Check out the latest edition of the Business of Government magazine and find out. Download or order a free copy at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors exploring ideas for improving government effectiveness with Professor Justin Bullock, co-author of the IBM Center Report, Risk Management and Reducing Improper Payments, a case study of the U.S. Department of Labor. Justin, the relationship between the unemployment insurance program and improper payments has been examined for the past 35 years. Would you provide uh, some historical context in this area? Sure. Um, So... Improper improper payments and unemployment insurance program in uh, particular have been going on, as you say, for over 35 years, specific research about identifying them. So the unemployment insurance program was one of the earliest leaders in federal programs of developing 
um, systematic empirical estimates of improper payments. And this all came about out of a bunch of anecdotal evidence in the mid-70s, on early mid-70s, on um, people's perceptions that unemployment insurance was vast, was making a ton of overpayments. And it got enough attention anecdotally that there was a creation of a National Commission on Unemployment Compensation. Um, this, com- this commission worked for two years, 1979 and 1980, and sought to examine the amount of improper payments within the unemployment insurance program. And in this early study, they just picked six metropolitan areas and did an in-depth analysis on those six areas. And what this first uh, kind of initial commission found was that improper payment rates in these areas, these six metropolitan areas, ranged uh, wildly. And as high as 25% of the uh, claims were uh, had some type of improper payment. And so with this sort of information in hand, the Department of Labor set about trying to um, create systematic ways to decrease these improper payments. And they went through a couple of iterations and eventually settled on this program called, that I mentioned earlier, the Benefit Accuracy Measurement Program, um, which began in 1995. And there's been some tweaks then, but pretty much every year, systematically, the Department of Labor has all states and territories systematically sample some percentage of the unemployment insurance claims for the year, do a detailed audit on them, and make determinations about whether it was an improper payment, who was responsible, and how much. And they continue to do this, and despite, um, as I talk in the report, the improper payments remaining um, high, there are some some structural reasons for that in terms of it being an insurance program, but they have managed to bring it down from some of these larger numbers, like 25% they were finding in the earlier studies. And so, and there was a, a, a sort of a downward trend as the unemployment insurance program and the Department of Labor put in strategies to try to better track these things. Um, but as we talk about in our report, they kind of reached a uh, by about the time of the time period we're looking at for this report had kind of reached a standstill and they were ticking back up. I'd like to explore the strategies used by the Department of Labor in tackling improper payments and payment errors in the unemployment insurance program. What are program letters? How do they act as conveyances of risk management strategies? Good question. Um, this is another fun example of getting your head wrapped around a bunch of uh, in the in the weeds of the research and um, kind of uh, assuming that these things are self-explanatory when they're and when they're not, and so the program letters are the imp- the ETA, the Employment and Training Administration, has an assistant secretary that when they want to convey strategies or na- nationwide information to the disparate states, they write a program letter, and so all a program letter is is it's alerting from the Department of Labor and within the Department of Labor, the Employment Training Administration um, is alerting all of the state workforce agencies. You might remember when uh, in an earlier question, we were talking about uh, the different roles the federal government and the state governments play, and the states are really the ones implementing this on the ground, and they're uh, not always talking with the other states. And so it's a way for the the program letters as a way for the Employment uh, and Training Administration to let all the states through one sort of official memo or one official document, let them know what they're trying to do to improve the efficiency or effectiveness of the unemployment insurance program. 
the program letters established four root causes of improper payments in the unemployment insurance program. Would you tell us more about each of these root causes? It's a good question. Um, so at this time, um, around 2011, the Department of Labor, uh, as you say, uh, identified four root causes. Um, they laid them out in the program letter. And these four root causes were, uh, the first one is uh, payments that are made to claimants who continue to claim benefits after returning to work and failing to report or under-reporting their claims. And so this root cause is when people get a job and either don't report that they've got a job or when they do report they've got a job, under-report how much they're making so they can continue um, to get some unemployment insurance. The second root cause is untimely and incomplete job separation information. And what this means is that when the state workforce agencies have a case agent on some applicant for unemployment insurance, that um, they don't have the correct or complete information about why the individual is no longer working with the company they were. And so this can lead to some errors. Uh, the third root cause uh, is the state's, in a, the state's inability to validate that claimants have met the state's work search requirements. So um, most of these states have some form of a requirement where if you're going to be receiving unemployment insurance, you have to demonstrate that you are actively looking for work. And there are some administrative issues with, um, with, with doing that. And so some of these improper payments are large portion of these improper payments uh, arise from that. And the fourth root cause uh, is claimant's failure to register with the state's employment service or the agency's failure to process the employment service registrations. So there's another set of organizations uh, or another entity within these states that ha they have an employment service, which is gives them, helps give them access uh, to resources to um, either get a job or go through some training. And so um, if either the claimant or the agents fail to do that, that can also trigger an improper payment. So those are the kind of, at this time, were the kind of root causes. And interestingly, they have changed over time. Um, in some of the earlier um, reports in the National Commission that I mentioned earlier, they weren't exactly the same. And so as the Department of Labor tries to tackle some of these, other problems stick out. To combat these known financial and reputational risks, the Department of Labor identified eight different strategies. Uh, I'd like to explore each of these strategies. Uh, first up, would you outline the key points of strategy one, which is developing unemployment insurance performance measures? Sure. So um, this is the first strategy that was sort of identified by the Department of Labor, which was developing unemployment insurance performance measures. And... Um, here, what they were trying to do is figure out what measure um, can they use to clearly highlight how well these state workforce agencies. And so the performance measure um, that they developed uh, to protect unemployment insurance integrity is the percentage of unemployment insurance benefits overpaid by a state due to benefit year earnings fraud. And so, um, in other words, the main performance measure is the ratio of the amount in benefits improperly overpaid, again, as I mentioned, they're mostly interested in overpayments here, to individuals because of uh, earnings or wages.
wages um, being incorrectly or or not reported. And again, this uh, highlights that they're focusing on overpayments, and it lets the states know that the the measures that the Department of Labor or the ETA are going to care about is overpayments as a result of earnings from the time period in question being incorrect. The second strategy you identify is developing the National Directory of New Hires. What is the NDNH and how has this tool been effective in detecting improper payments? So this is one of the um, uh, the more um, straightforward, useful tools that doesn't require a ton of discretion and Actually, in some other research I have uh, with my co-author on this, Dr. Greer, we sort of show empirically um, that the NDNH is one of the most effective ways to decrease improper payments. And so essentially what it is is that when someone is hired in an organization, the company is supposed to report that to the state. And so states have these databases, which are called State Directory of New Hires, um, and then what's been developed is that these, uh, these states then report to a national directory. And so what you can see is that if not only if, say, in Texas, where I am, if a worker lo- loses their job, say, through no fault of their own, starts receiving unemployment insurance benefits in Texas, but then goes up to Oklahoma and has a job. It's not always easy for those states to share information. And so what the national directory does is allows the state workforce agency in Texas to plug in that person's name into a database and query to see if they've started working somewhere else. And so it catches quicker people who have um, who are still receiving unemployment insurance benefits but who have started working somewhere else. And so it's a really efficient way of of finding that information, flagging it, and catching when people are doing that. Another strategy you identify is implementing a statewide claimant employer messaging campaign. Why is it so important to increase this messaging, and how does the toolkit remedy the root causes of improper payments? Good good question. So the messaging is essentially a set of tools for um, having a uniform message to claimants and employers, and claimants being the individuals who are applying for unemployment insurance, employers being the people they formerly worked for. And so the idea was that if the ETA could um, provide resources to the state workforce agencies to improve the communication and the understanding between those seeking unemployment insurance benefits and their employers. Um, So the toolkit had a variety of sort of pre-made messages, templates, sample recorded videos, audio scripts, a whole array of tools that would allow them to have a uniform message across the states about making sure that both the employers and the people seeking unemployment insurance, the claimants, have uh, good information that is consistent across the states. And the idea here is that with better access to consistent information, employers and claimants will more easily provide relevant and accurate information to state agents so that the state agents can accurately determine the unemployment insurance benefit. So it's just a way to make the communication and information lower barriers to communication and improve standard standardization of information. 
In the fourth strategy, the Department of Labor again uses increasing communication and collaboration among stakeholders as a valuable tool. In this case, the relevant stakeholders are the state workforce agencies themselves. Can you tell us more about the importance of increasing collaboration with high-impact states, and what are some of those high-impact states? Sure. So high-impact states uh, are essentially code for larger states, and they're designated high-impact because they are large, (laughs) and so they have a lot more people seeking unemployment insurance, and so a lot of dollars, uh, and just in terms of absolute dollars, are going to these these states, big states like New York and California. And the idea was that if the Department of Labor could work carefully with these big states, but only be working with, say, 11 entities, which is what they initially identified, instead of all 50, that other states would see and mimic what the bigger states with the more resources were doing to the best of their ability. And so it's kind of like um, helping a smaller subset of states to, to generate best practices. And then the idea is that through state experiment and through uh, communication with neighboring states, that some of these best practices would be picked up by neighboring states. And they would have sort of models to, uh, the ETA would have models to kind of show off to all the states. Justin, how does providing supplemental funding work to reduce payment errors or uh, tackle improper payments? And how does this funding also serve as a strong incentive to encourage agencies to implement a full range of the Department of Labor tools? Well, that that might be the first time that an uh, academic has been accused of writing something that actually made common sense. (laughs) Um, So, uh, yeah, so for Strategy 5, the supplemental funding is the, the... Department of Labor and ETA's way of providing resources to, and as a byproduct of that, encouraging states to uh, adopt these strategies. So the sort of underpinning here is uh, is a carrot approach, right? And it is, and we uh, we say in the report, it's a carrot on a stick. Which what we mean by that is that the Department of Labor is saying, look here's a stick, you need to do these things. But if you will do these things, we'll give you some real percentage of the money, if not all of it, to cover the implementation of this. So one uh, unemployment insurance program letter in particular that laid out some of this supplemental funding, there were several, and to the ETA's credit, they they sent out quite a few over this time period as reminders to the states to say, hey, here's this money, if you apply for it, will help you improve your administration. And some of these funding opportunities included supporting the integrity of the unemployment insurance program for the prevention, detection, and recovery of improper uh, improper unemployment insurance claims, uh, improved state performance. And again, remember, we have a performance measure that they had already identified um, or that has been identified. Address outdated information technology systems and enable statements to expand or implement reemployment or eligibility assessment programs. But they were required to get this money. The uh, DOL required that the states had begun implementing a set of tools on their own that they called core integrity activities. And these core integrity activities included uh, continued operation on a cross-functional integrity task force, 
engaging in a business process analysis to identify areas of weakness, um, activities listed in the recommended operating procedures for conducting cross-matching with the NDNH, um, using SIDES, the State Information Data Exchange System, and the messaging service, um, using the claim and messaging toolkit, use of the employment service registration, implementation of the U.S. Department's Treasury Treasury's offset program, and use of an automated state unemployment tax act um, dumping detection system to detect employers who may be engaged in some uh, unemployment insurance tax rate manipulation. And so they they had a few sets of strategies that were or things the ETA did that they wanted the states to do that were low cost. And if they would just show some effort in that you know, lower cost direction, they would provide additional resources for some of these more um, for for more strategies that might not be as easy or as cheap to implement. How has labor sought to reduce improper payments within its unemployment insurance program? We'll explore this question and so much more when our special edition of the Business of the Government Hour, A Conversation with Authors, returns. From forging a unity of effort in homeland security, to strategizing today how to feel the U.S. Army of tomorrow, to pursuing affordable housing, eliminating fraud, waste, and abuse in healthcare, and securing cyberspace, the latest edition of the Business of Government magazine delves into a diverse set of topics and public management issues facing us today. Hi, I'm Michael Keegan, the editor of the Business of Government magazine, and with each edition, I present the leadership stories of a select group of public servants and complement their frontline experience with practical insights from thought leaders, merging real-world experience with practical scholarship. The purpose is not to offer a definitive solution to many of the management challenges facing government executives, but to provide a resource from which to draw practical, actionable recommendations on how best to confront these issues. Check out the latest edition of the Business of Government magazine and find out. We bring you insights and interviews from government executives who are changing the way government does business. Download or order a free copy at businessofgovernment.org. Important social challenges cross agency boundaries, and working effectively to solve these problems, it's not easy. Join host Michael Keegan next week for a special edition of the Business of Government Hour as he explores how New Zealand tackles these wicked challenges. How have public management reforms evolved in New Zealand? What is the New Zealand Results Program? What can other governments learn from the New Zealand experience? That's next week on the Business of Government Hour. Tune in Mondays at 11 for the Business of Government Hour on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors exploring ideas for improving government effectiveness with Professor Justin Bullock, co-author of the IBM Senate report, Risk Management and Reducing Improper Payments, a case study of the U.S. Department of Labor. There's another strategy you identify that uses technology for aiding and communicating and sharing information across the relevant decision makers and stakeholders in the unemployment insurance benefit determination process. Why is it important to develop a state information data exchange system, SIDES? How does it help employers respond to requests from state unemployment insurance agents in a faster, easier, and more accurate manner? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a good question. So this is... Um... Another uh, you know, this strategy, as you say, uses some, uses some technology for aiding in communication, sharing information across some of the relevant decision makers. Um, and uh, in particular, it allows for employers, it helps employers 
uh, respond to requests from UI agents, unemployment insurance agents, more quickly, easier, and in a, in a more accurate way. And essentially what decides uh, the state information data exchange system is, is a web-based system that allows electronic transmission of information requests and replies between UI agents and uh, multi-state employers and third-party administrators. And so it's kind of a, it's essentially a portal that employers can log into that makes it easier for them to communicate with state agents, and particularly large employers. And um, what it does is it allows for the exchange of information about why individuals uh, were separated from their job and to allow easier uh, opportunities to verify earnings. And there's two options. Employers have two options. And so employers, large multi-state employers, can have access to an integrated computer-to-computer interface that, facilitate, that facilitated or facilitates an automated data sharing and file tracking interface among the employers, third-party administrators, and UI agents. And so they kind of set them up essentially um, with a computer-to-computer software. Smaller employers can still take advantage of this uh, system um, by using a uh, using the portal that I mentioned. So the portal is sort of available to smaller uh, companies um, that makes it easier to respond to requests, whereas larger employers have a uh, more systematic uh, software that allows more direct communication. And this sort of builds on some of the other strategies in that it, it was a it was an attempt to um, lower barriers to information and communication, lower those barriers, lower those costs, so that it would be easier on average for state administrators to, uh, or UI administrators, to get the correct information in a timely manner. Uh, Justin, how can developing state quality service plans assist programs in addressing improper payments? So this is a, was an attempt at... Um, sort of a best practice, an early best practices uh, document. So it's a document that um, was used, is, is used not only to ensure strong program performance, again, thinking back about our measures, but also to help guide key management decisions, such as where the state workforce agencies should focus resource, resources. And so this type of plan would allow uh, states to have focused efforts to ensure well-balanced performance, um, across a whole range of unemployment insurance activities. Um, and so they, it's kind of like a, a, a flexible template that would help decision makers clearly identify and weight different options for improving um, their, the administration of unemployment insurance. So it's just a, it's a nice guide or a nice tool for them to be able to even tailor it to some of the state-specific needs, but that just clearly highlights the parameters that they should be uh, considering when making a, a, a variety of, cho- of uh, decisions with respect to um, administering unemployment insurance. Uh, Justin, would you tell us more about the value of creating an unemployment insurance integrity center of excellence? Uh, what are the key activities performed by this center? It's a good question. So this one is similar uh, in its purpose to collaborating with high-impact states, but it's kind of a institution that does that. And so the idea here is that there would be an integrity, integrity center of excellence 
through uh, that was in a partnership with New York State's Department of Labor and in partnership with the National Association of State Workforce Agencies. And the center's goal was or is to promote the unemployment insurance program's development and implementation of innovative integrity strategies, including in particular the prevention uh, and detection of fraud. And so the uh, the early activities that they latched on to um, were sophisticated new data analytics and predictive modeling tools to improve the prevention and detection of improper payments. And that was something that actually came up in our conversation with the Texas Workforce Commission and our case study there. It's a secure portal for communicating fraud schemes in the UI program, integrity training modules, information related to best practices, products to help states improve their integrity operations, and on-site technical assistance that could be available to the states in improving their program integrity. And so this was just to, the purpose of this was to be an entity that uh, would continue on some of the lessons from, uh, from the high-impact states and from some of the best practices that had been identified. And this to be kind of a, not necessarily a one-stop shop, but a place where a state workforce agency that is aware, uh, that they are aware of that they can go to for some of the best practices from their their colleagues and other state workforce agencies. Justin, as part of your report for the IBM Center, you had the opportunity to study how these risk management strategies are perceived and implemented within one state, uh, the Texas Workforce Commission, which is Texas' state workforce agency. How did you conduct this case study and what methods did you use? Sure. Um, just a brief background on the case. Uh, we were able to um, uh, get in contact with and get individuals, uh, high-ranking individuals at the Texas Workforce Commission, um, including um, the Deputy Director of Unemployment Insurance, Customer Service and Operations, the Director of Statistical Sampling, the Director of Business Transformation, Rapid Process Improvement, and the Director of the Office of Investigations. And they were kind enough to spend a couple hours uh, chatting with us about their experience uh, with improper payments in the Texas Workforce Commission. And we used a semi-structured group interview. We had a few questions that we wanted to ask them, but also kind of let the the conversation flow naturally. And over the course of that conversation and thinking back about um, what all we we discussed, we we did have a six specific findings. And the findings were, the first one was that the Texas Workforce Commission took very seriously the issue of the prevalence of improper payments within the unemployment insurance program. And so this kind of answered a question for us that was, the Department of Labor is doing all of these things, uh, but do the states even care? Um, And at least in Texas, the Texas Workforce Commission uh, was very passionate about this. They were passionate about being good stewards of the taxpayers' dollars, and they were passionate about getting the improper payment rate as low as possible. Second finding was that the Texas Workforce Commission um, individuals we spoke with believe that improper payments are a risk that deserves specific management attention. So not only were they aware broadly of improper payments and, and cared about them and were passionate about them, they really did buy into this idea that uh, they wanted to think carefully and creatively about how to lower improper payments. So this group of individuals, sort of as essentially an informal working group, also spent a decent amount of time discussing amongst themselves ways to mitigate the risks of improper payments. So the third finding was that the Texas Workforce Commission was aware of the Department of Labor's sponsored tools um, that we asked about specifically, including the National Director of New Hires, sides and messaging. 
and uh, they were also not only aware of these of these programs that we had some interest in, but they were also well aware of a variety of other tools. And uh, we also learned that the Texas Workforce Commission essentially takes advantage of every opportunity to apply for supplemental funding. So they were a big proponent or a big fan of these supplemental uh, funding opportunities to increase the efficiency of the program. And they actually conduct an internal cost-benefit analysis uh, to make sure that the funds coming in are going to be a net positive. And the fourth finding was that the Texas Workforce Commission had identified additional strategies it believed to be useful in combating improper payments, even outside of those encouraged by the Department of Labor. And so here you could see some creativity that all of the focus, just having the attention directed on improper payments, um, encouraged the worker, encouraged the individuals in the Texas Workforce Commission to think even more creatively. So the group mentioned predictive analytics uh, for identifying unemployment insurance claims that might be more likely to result in an improperly paid claim. They also mentioned using predictive analytics to develop criteria that would aid in uh, identifying cases of fraud as well. The fifth finding that we had is that the Texas Work Workforce Commission staff we interviewed believe that the Department of Labor strategies are helpful in reducing improper payments. So it's kind of interesting to see people on the ground implementing these strategies and asking them, uh, do these things work? And um, they were, uh, they found that the NDNH uh, was the most effective strategy, in their opinion, in minimizing improper payments. And this is also, as a side note, what Dr. Greer and I have found in a, a different empirical study that we have. The NDNH is really one of the strategies that is, um, that is helping, helping drive the lowering of improper payments. We actually have uh, some statistical estimates of how much NDNH has helped lower those, and it's almost a full uh, not quite, but almost a full percentage point is associated with those that have implemented NDNH, and about $52 um, on average for every um, overpayment dollar per unemployed person. So we, uh, our additional research finds this as well, and um, they also believe sides and messaging to be useful as well, but with a particular focus on the utility of these databases. And the sixth finding was that the Texas Workforce Commission is working hard on their approach to risk management and improper payments. So we found, for example, that the Texas Workforce Commission has responded to the improper payments target of less than 10%. They're really focused on that. That's an important number for them. Uh, the lowering of the improper payments is a high priority by all indications that we could find. They have made extensive use of funding strategies. Um, they have followed the encouragement of the Department of Labor to develop new tools, and they did find the tools that were provided to them to be useful. And so it was kind of it was actually really neat for us. I haven't done a lot of um, interview research, and so it was cool to see after doing a lot of thought and research into how these strategies might be useful talking to these sort of high-level individuals in the Texas Workforce Commission and them saying, yeah, these things are, are useful and, of course, we care about them. Uh, Justin, your report presents four recommendations for managing operational risks. Would you elaborate on each of these recommendations? Certainly. Um, so, as you say, there are four uh, that were sort of our big takeaways. And some of these will seem, I think, um, in some ways self-evident, but also a, a, a lot of evidence to support um, what we might suggest 
have suggested anecdotally. And so the first one is that it's really useful to establish clear metrics for measurement and evaluation. And so we found throughout the study that um, um, compared to other types of risk management problems, improper payment reduction has the advantage of a clear standard established by law in the Improper Payment Elimination and Recovery Act. And so it was really, it's really something easy to, uh, to focus on and to try to achieve an overall reduction in improper payments. And so the, um, having a clear metric for measurement and evaluation gave standards from which they could work from and also um, uh, made it such that states could compare across their comp uh, counterparts and their colleagues. Um, so we, and we also found that the Texas Workforce Commission did indeed focus on these measures and evaluations. Um, so uh, having a clear metric we thought was uh, one sort of uh, a clear metric for measurement and evaluation was one of these uh, was our first recommendation for managing operational risks in a complex institutional arrangement. The second one was to take advantage of recommended strategies and resources, but also don't be afraid to innovate. And so here we were really drawing from our case where we saw that the Texas Workforce Commission had been uh, taking advantage of all these strategies. And on top of that, had some additional success from building from those strategies and thinking about carefully about the work that had been put into developing them, but also not being afraid to try some new things. We were talk as I were talk as we were talking about earlier, using things like predictive analytics and building on the resources that are provided to them. So again, recommendation two: take advantage of recommended strategies, uh, best practices and uh, don't be afraid to innovate and build on top of those. The third recommendation was to, is to provide relevant and timely information to stakeholders. And so one of the Department of Labor's main goals in offering the recommended tools and strategies that we mentioned above was to simply increase communication, quality of uh, communication, and the timeliness of communication between the relevant stakeholders. And um, for example, one of the DOL strategies targeted messages to claimants uh, was found to be an effective strategy to combat improper payments that were caused by work search requirements, which is, was one of the identified root causes. Um, and same thing with the toolkit. The toolkit uh, provided uh, information and standardized information to a variety of stakeholders, as, did, as does the UI Integrity Center of Excellence. And so this type of communication among states and the Department of Labor um, was able to increase the type of communication, the quality of information, and um, help the disparate states identify the best practices and implement them, and also helps make sure that the employers and the claimants, those seeking unemployment insurance, have the right information they need to know what their responsibilities are. Uh, the fourth and final recommendation um, is that a broad range of strategies uh, is needed when the causes of operational risks are varied. And so one of the things we really liked about the Department of Labor strategies is they didn't, even though I've harped a little bit on the NDNH, they recognized that the risks that they were incurring in terms of operational risks with respect to financial, uh, to improper payments, uh, were from several different root causes and not any one of these strategies could easily handle the uh, 
all four root causes. And so they, they realized that one way to m mitigate or minimize these operational risks is to implement several different types of strategies, each with their own likelihood of success, and each that had some trade-offs between um, discretion and not, and automated and not, and communication and information, and sort of kind of threw the gamut at it. And we thought that was a, another good recommendation for uh, dealing with these complex environments when you know you have operational risks. So, Justin, uh, before we close, what prompted your interest in uh, this research area? And perhaps you could highlight the methods you used. It's a good question. Um, and I've um, been interested in errors. I've been interested in decision-making uh, for most of my, what was my early graduate school career and now as an assistant professor. And I also really care about good governance and accountability. And I think that government provides some really important um, programs for, uh, for the people, but we also want to be really sure that uh, our tax dollars and our resources are being used as effectively and efficiently as possible. And so what I uh, enjoyed about this research is not answering the question of whether or not these programs should be in place, which I happen to think the unemployment insurance program is quite useful, but conditional on the fact that we're going to have programs and we're going to have services for the people, um, how can we identify ways to do that as cost-efficient and as effectively as possible? And luckily, uh, one of the nice things about this question is there are lots of data on this. So since 2004, uh, well, it was 2002 when sort of the first federal laws came into place about improper payments, um, there have been great data collected at the national level, and then the Department of Labor has had this data since 1995. And so as an empiricist, uh, someone who likes to use empirical data, it's been a beautiful case of thinking about good governance, thinking about decreasing errors and, and waste, and doing that with some very rich data. And so that's kind of what drew, uh, uh, drew me to this particular project. Professor Bullock, I want to thank you for your time today. Yep. Thanks, Michael. This has been a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors exploring ideas for improving government effectiveness with Professor Justin Bullock, co-author of the IBM Center Report, Risk Management and Reducing Improper Payments, a case study of the U.S. Department of Labor. Be sure to join us next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government effectiveness. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org. Important social challenges cross agency boundaries, and working effectively to solve these problems, it's not easy. Join host Michael Keegan next week for a special edition of the Business of Government Hour as he explores how New Zealand tackles these wicked challenges. How have public management reforms evolved in New Zealand? What is the New Zealand Results Program? What can other governments learn from the New Zealand experience? That's next week on the Business of Government Hour. Tune in Mondays at 11 for the Business of Government Hour on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM.